This lecture is brought to you by Buford Road Baptist Church. The speaker today is Deacon Danny Cahoot. We're in the mountains, and we've gotten, hopefully I can finish up with this one here, but it just amazes me how much work and how God is involved in the mountains from the beginning. And, uh, you know, you figure with Ararat, he performed, and uh, Sinai with Moses, and uh, Moriah, that's coming up next, Moriah, Carmel. I mean, it's, the, the things that God did on top of these mountains is just, just the, the more I dig into it, it's just fascinating. As I wrap up this morning, if y'all didn't get a sheet like, of, like this here when you came in, I'm a, at the end, I'm going to show a little video clip on it. It's not, not much to it, but when, we, when people had debated for years and years about where's Noah's Ark, where was it at, where's it been, they can't find it. Well, this archaeologist, had, um, had, after running all these tests and all, he found out that there was a great earthquake when, when the Ark had rested on the great Ararat at first. There was an earthquake which erupted a volcano. And the ark actually slid down, and they, 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 they weren't looking in the right place. And you'll see, as it, this guy can explain it better than I can, the one that looks like all these pipes that's on the picture. There's a special kind of metal. They said it was impossible to be anything other than made by man. And the age of it, they've got tests, but they ran the age of it and all. But he took this metal detector, and he was going beam by beam, nail by nail, and he outlined the entire arc. And, you, you know, and I'll talk more about that here, here shortly. And you can look at the one in the middle there. Those are the actual beams on the side that have been excavated. And the dimensions, the footage, is exactly, precisely to the eighth of an inch of what this Bible said it was. Impossible to not be hit, and, and we'll get more into that here in just a little bit. And as we studied the, the footage of it, why it was such a debate, they were, they were, there was such a debate on the, the length of it. But this archaeologist wouldn't let it go, and we'll, I'll talk more about him. I'm excited about this guy. But when Moses wrote Genesis... And when, Mo, and when Moses' account of it, they said that he was well-learned in the Egyptian, uh, he was well-learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. The Egyptians' cubit is 20.62. 20 inches, 0.62. The Hebrew cubic is 18 inches. Well, the Hebrew hadn't, uh, Moses wrote this before, before the Hebrew nation. Yeah, if you're with me on that. Moses was dead when the Hebrews went into the promised land. So the, the Hebrew cubic, I'll get, I'm getting ahead of myself. The Hebrew cubic that was known at that point, what Moses was, if you look at, let's go to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7 real quick. This will explain it better. And then I'll get really into this here in a minute. Acts chapter 11, I'm chapter 7. It's fascinating to me. I'm just, the more I learn about it. Acts chapter 7, 
verse 22. I'll skip around a little bit in the New Testament because the New Testament and the Old Testament back each other up. Acts chapter 7, let's uh, verse 20 and 21 and 22. In which time Moses was born and was exceeding fair and nourished up to his father's house three months. And when he was cast out, Pharaoh's daughter took him up and nourished him for her own son. And here's the verse that, that, that is talking about. If you, if you look what he's doing, he's, he was learned in the Egyptian math. Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. And when he was a full 40 years old, it came in his heart to visit the brethren of the children of Israel. But so he was, when, when he wrote this, in uh, it, the, the Egyptian cubic foot, as far as measuring measurements, was 20 inches, 0.62. And I'll come back to this in a, but the Hebrew cubit is 18. That's important when we get back to it. So let's go into Genesis now. Back to chapter 8 where we had left off last week. I said that's a whole lot. To, I hope I didn't confuse you. But Genesis is the book of beginnings. And when Noah came on, when Noah came on, God made a covenant with him. And it's the Noahic covenant. Noahic covenant. I might not be pronouncing them right. And uh, so we are going to start in verse 7, where we left off last time is we had, he had just let the birds out of the ark, the, the doves, a couple of times the dove, didn't, the dove came back the first time with the olive branch, but then went back out again and didn't come back. So we're going to pick up, uh, let's see, I'll, I'll review that again. Chapter 8 and verse 7. Well, let's start where he landed on the, on, the, on the mountain. Let's read these again. Chapter 8. Let's go with verse 1 of chapter 8. And God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the cattle that was with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters assuaged. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heaven were stopped and the rain and the heavens were strained. The waters returned off the earth continually and after the end of 150 days, the waters were abated. And the ark rested in the seventh month on the 17th day of the month, upon the mountains of Ararat. There's a great Ararat and a smaller Ararat. There's two mountains there. And the waters decreased continually until the 10th month. And in the 10th month, on the first day of the month, were the tops of the mountains seen. And it came to pass at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made and sent forth a raven which went forth to and fro until the waters were dried up from off the earth, went forth to and fro. The raven did not come back. That's a simple, I got deep into that last time. He sent forth a dove from him to see what the waters were abated from off the face of the ground. The dove found no rest for her sole of her foot, and she returned. The raven didn't. Into the ark, for the waters were on the face of the earth, and then he put forth his hand and took her in and pulled her into the ark. Okay, let's... I'm going to skip past over this and get to the covenant. Okay, let's go to chapter 9. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. The being fruitful also, not just being reproductive and in the race, 
but also in, in planning and, and growing and, and food and, and be fruitful with your life. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every upon the beast of the earth and upon the fowl of the air and, the, and all that moved upon the earth and upon all the fish of the sea. Into your hand are they delivered. Every living thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb that I have given you all things. But the flesh of with the life thereof, which is the, which is the blood, therefore you shall not eat. And surely your blood of your lives will I require at the hand of every beast will I require it. And at the, that, what that means is if, a, if an animal kills a person, that, that animal is going to be destroyed, a human person. And at the hand of every man's brother will I require the life of a man. Whosoever sheddeth man's blood by man shall his blood be shed for the, for the image of God made he man. Now this noetic covenant, covenant it's the first form of human government that came onto the, before there was no law, there was no government, everybody was just free for all. Now that Noah came in, he's starting over, now God is setting up a government and, and people will govern the earth and he, he sets up government for the first time right there. In uh, verse seven, and, be you, and you be ye fruitful and multiply and bring forth abundantly in the earth not just people, this is everything, just, just bring forth abundantly. And God spake to Noah and his son, saying, and I will, and behold, and I, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you. <coughs> Every living creature that is with you of the fowl of the cattle and of the beast of the earth with you, from all that go out out of the ark and every beast of the earth, I will establish my covenant with you. <coughs> Neither shall flesh be cut off any more from the waters of the flood. Neither shall there be any more of a flood to destroy the earth. And the covenant was that. He's not going to destroy the earth anymore with a flood. And the bow, the bow, the rainbow, when you look at it, that's a reminder of that covenant. Okay. I want to skip on ahead here now to chapter 20. And this is where we'll pick up. I've, I've kind of reviewed what I did last week, but time in the Bible isn't computed like, like we would think time. I mean, it could be years and years and years go by, but if you read it, it seems like it's tomorrow. And here's my example on that, verse 20. And Noah began to be a husbandman and planted a vineyard. Okay, what that's telling me is he had seeds. He had grape seeds, Right? Do you know how long it takes to grow a vineyard with just with, with seeds? Now he also had to have seeds of 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 all the fruits. Then he he planted a vineyard specifically. So you're talking, uh, I, I mean, you plant great. Uh, you've got a vineyard and you 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 bought your plants planted and planted. But can you imagine just taking grape seeds? So you're looking at years. You know, I would say at least five years to have a vineyard big enough to, to make wine. And uh, so time in itself, it's, it seems like, and Noah planted a vineyard and began to be a husband, and he planted a vineyard. That, you know, to just read over that, you're looking at years and years and years, uh, several years go by. And this is what I never have understood this part of the Bible. This is this part right This is all about Ararat. Now, Go figure, Moses, 
God found, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Why, why, was, why, did he, why did he get drunk? Why did he have to get drunk? Why did he have to do that? He planted a vineyard, you know, and it's just, it's, just, it's kind of heartbreaking for me. And he drank the wine and was drunk, drunken, and uncovered within his tent. His intent was not to sin with his kids. He just got drunk and passed out is what it, what it, basically what has happened. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and behold, the two brethren without. And Sham and Japheth took the garment and laid it upon their shoulders and went backwards and covered the nakedness of the father, and their faces were backward, and they saw not the nakedness of the father. Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, and uh, the servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord of Sham, and Canaan shall be his servant. And God shall enlarge Japheth, and, and shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan the servant. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years, and all the year, days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Now, I'm going to cover a little bit on the dates, uh, on, on the dates, how it, it, the ark rested in October, the seventh, the seventh month, which is October the 17th day. Because that, I'm, I'm going to skip ahead into the, as once the, once the feasts were established, the Feast of Tabernacles, which, which we covered a little bit last time, was established on that same week. It's a week of new beginnings. And so, when, I'm going to just cover one little verse here because this is I'm, I'm still studying on it. If you go to Zechariah real quick, or you can follow me, Zechariah chapter 14. It's one of the few. It doesn't say that they're going to do their Day of Atonement and, the, and, and all the other ones, but it does say here in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 16, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem this is during the millennium. I'm jumping ahead, I know, but I'll, I'll, I'll explain it better when I get back. They came against Jerusalem, shall go, even go up from year to year to worship the king of, king of the Lord of hosts and keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So for at least a thousand years, we're going to be right in the middle of that, that's, that third, second, week, second and third week of October. That is the Feast of Tabernacles. And if you know, if you look back on my Christmas uh, lessons that I prepare, that is the week that Christ was actually born. So it's actually a worship of, of, of the Lord's birthday, actually, of that, that entire week is a Feast of Tabernacles. And, and I'm not going to get into those feasts. That'll come later. I'm going to go back to every single one of them uh, once we finish up the mountains. But... But that's why it's, that's, that's another big important thing of it. But the, but the big thing of it is, is it's a week of Sukkoth, which the, the, the Jews are to, to get in these huts and they're supposed to spend this whole week in there feasting and, and just to remember what, how God had delivered them. Okay. So let me back up here. Okay. I found it interesting also, I'm going to go, uh, 
about the generations that de developed. And, and I didn't know this, but uh, verse 11, and then I'm going to cover back. I'm, I'm skipping all around right now, but just, just hang with me. Go jump in the head to Jonah. You ever think about where the city Nineveh came from? And uh, check this out. Verse 11. Well, back up some verse 8 of chapter my pages, chapter 10, verse 8. And Cush begat Nimrod, and he began to be a mighty one in the earth, and he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Eric and Akkad and Sinkaldith in the land of Shinar, and out of that land went forth Asher and builded up Nineveh. Okay, that's the, well, that's the beginning of Nineveh. And the reason I'm, I'm, I'm throwing all this stuff out there of going here and there with it is because as, the, as these people begin to replenish and build on the earth, this is, this is actually drawing a conclusion to the Noahic Covenant. When these people got together and they, and they said, we're going to build this tower up to, to heaven and we're going to reach the heavens and we're going to... And so God confused their language. And once that happened, the Tower of Babel was built and the, the, the languages were disputed. That ended the covenant at that point. Let's, let's, well, that, that started the failure. So go to verse 11. I'm in chapter 11. And the whole earth was of one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one of another, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime they had for mortar. And they said, go to, let us build this a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make a name, make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children and men built it. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is of one, and they have all one language. And this they begin to do. Now there is nothing that was restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down there and confound the language that they may not understand one another's speech. And the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of the earth, and they left off from building the city. Therefore, the name of that city is called Babel. I guess everybody was just babbling, babbling, babbling. <laughs> they couldn't understand each other. But uh, I, see, I brought all that into the to, to show with time, you know, how many thousands and thousands of people over the years just reproduce, reproduce, reproduce. The earth had been replenished. Sin had, the earth had corrupted itself again with the, with, with, with people. And, uh, and so it, this was when it says, when that's, I know that's just one chapter over, but you're talking about several hundred years maybe before you can, you actually replenish the earth. And, uh, so what we've got, we're going back, back up to Mount Ararat. And then I'm going to show you some really fascinating things on a little video clip, and I hope that's interesting to you. But uh, I, I, I think that the, the archaeologists can explain it a lot better than me. I've, read, I've seen it probably four, maybe five times, and it's all King James, and it's nothing, that, nothing outside of the Scripture. It's all 
It's all, uh, the, the fact that this man actually found it and he just spent years and years and years studying and, and the, 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 the archaeological digs that he put together on this is just fascinating. But Meran Ararat itself is 16,945 feet above sea level, the highest peak in Turkey. It's 25 miles in diameter, and it's two of them. They're seven miles apart between the two peaks, the Great Ararat and the Little Ararat. The Little Ararat is smooth, steep, and a perfect cone shape, 12,000 feet above sea level. Neither have craters and towers 14,000 feet above the adjoining plains. So there's plains, plains as far as, as your eyes can probably see at the base of these mountains. I don't actually have that one on here. I've just got the picture of the ark right here. I had said I was going to, I didn't print those off. I should have. The actual twin peaks. And, uh, so what we, so we've, so last week we went through the Edenic covenant. We went through the, which, uh, there's two, the two types of covenants. One is conditional and one unconditional. God is not going to break the bow in the sky. But the covenant that, like he made with Adam, he said, look, as long as you, don't eat of that tree. You're going to be blessed, and you're going to have you're going to have life. But if you if you eat that tree, I'm, that that covenant is no good. You're going to bring sin into the world, and you're going to die. And uh, so there are two types of covenants. And uh, I'm trying to find my where I'm at here. Okay. So the next time I teach, we're going to get into the Abrahamic covenant, which goes to Moriah. Now, I went to, we went to, uh, they don't let you do that anymore. I'm just skipping a little bit here. That, that dome, they don't let you go in there no more, do they? They don't. When you took me and we went, we actually went inside that dome and we actually sat there and was, sit there and, and was two foot from where Abraham had offered Isaac up on that rock. And inside it, there was, there was these Muslims lying all around inside that dome with these machine guns, man, and they would just, they wouldn't take their eyes off of you. It was scary. But you had to take your shoes off to go in there, but I'm, not, I'm jumping ahead a little bit. But we got, that is a fascinating story in itself with coming to, with Mariah. But uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to go ahead and put on some of this clip right here because this is all about Mount Ararat. I know I'm... This is my final part on, on Mariah, but we're going to play a little video of it and show you what this man actually found, and it lines up with the Bible. And uh, I, I guess I should have checked with you first, but I did watch it four or five times. But this is fascinating to me. Let's play it, guys, and, uh, and I'll finish up when we, we come in. This, I don't normally teach. I've never teach Sunday school with a video. I don't. But this was, I, I did one time with the feast, that the last feast I did, I remember on a Passover, I showed a video clip of how they did that. But let's play that, guys, and I'll jump in when I need to. On June 20, 1987, in the mountains of Ararat, Turkey officially recognized the discovery of Noah's Ark. 
located on a mountainside about 15 miles south of the volcanic Mount Ararat, the remains of the massive ship were dedicated during a special ceremony. Guest of honor was Ron Wyatt due to his 10 years of research at the site. The story began in 1957 during the Cold War when aerial photos taken of eastern Turkey while searching for Soviet missile bases revealed a strange boat-shaped formation in the mountains about 6,300 feet above sea level. Life magazine reported on the story after an expedition from the United States went to the site in 1960. Blowing holes in the strange formation, the members of the team came away with the conclusion that there was nothing there of any archaeological interest. Ron Wyatt, like many others, read the story, but he was of the opinion that the site needed further exploration. There had been many claims of seeing Noah's Ark on the volcanic Mount Ararat, but Ron knew that it was a stratovolcano and he believed that nothing would have been able to survive there. He noted the biblical account of the location of the ark. And the ark rested in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, upon the mountains of Ararat. Uratu, the biblical Ararat, was a large region in eastern Turkey. This location was certainly feasible. But the factor that captured his interest the most was the length given in the Life magazine story, 500 feet. Most people were looking for a 437-foot Noah's Ark based on the Hebrew cubit, but Ron again went to the Bible to learn more. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Moses was the author of the Genesis account of the flood. He would have known the cubit of the Egyptians. The Hebrew cubit didn't come into existence until there was a Hebrew nation after Moses' death. The Encyclopedia Britannica stated, The Egyptian cubit is generally recognized as having been the most ubiquitous or universal standard of linear measurement in the very ancient world. The royal cubit equals 20.62 inches. This would mean Noah's Ark was much longer than 437 feet. Seventeen years after the Life magazine article, Ron finally made the journey to Turkey. When he saw the boat-shaped object, he saw that it looked just like it did in 1960, and he knew he would need permission to excavate in order to learn anything about what was beneath the surface. So he returned home, and enlisted a number of friends to help him pray for an earthquake to reveal more. In late 1978, he learned of an earthquake in eastern Turkey and returned in August of 1979. When he arrived, he was overwhelmed by what he saw. The earthquake had dropped the soil around the object and a large crack extended the entire length. He could see what looked to him like the remains of decayed rib timbers along the now exposed sides. Also, he was able to measure the depth of the debris and measure the length. It was 515 feet, or exactly 300 royal Egyptian cubits. He was now convinced. 
He carefully combed the surface, looking for evidence that it was a shipwreck. He saw what he believed were petrified structures of an ancient ship whose deck had collapsed. He saw what looked like deck joists and deck support timbers. Of particular interest was the fact that the ship appeared to be impaled on a large outcropping of limestone. He concluded that this indicated that the ship had slid into the rock from another location. Before he made his first trip to Turkey, he had done an experiment in a nearby lake, building mountain configurations out of rocks and floating a boat model by them to see the reaction of the boat. He noted that a crescent shape caused the water to pull the boat into the crescent where the boat remained and gently floated. The present location did not fit with the results of that experiment, so Ron decided to examine the area above the boat shape. The site was in a moving mud flow, so he followed the mud flow up the mountainside. About a mile and a half up, he found a crescent shape of mountains. He saw that the mud flow began up here. When he arrived near the top of the ridge, he found an ancient stele, like an ancient billboard, which depicted the boat shape, the familiar mountain ridge, several birds, and eight faces within the boat shape. Clearly, this was a reference to the ship of Noah and its eight survivors. He noticed a taller mountain peak on the Steely that was no longer visible from that location. He concluded that it was a small volcano that had erupted long after Noah's Ark had landed and that it had carried the ship down the mountainside about a mile where it was impaled on the limestone outcropping, then covered in lava. Can you jump that ahead now? The lava then encased the ship like a time cap. Yeah, right there. Oh. Right where it was showing the joist. This is it's almost done, guys. I'm telling you, this is just fascinating. Yeah, right there is good. Huh? You back it up. Good. No, there you go. That's perfect. Good in the ground. He believed this to be the bottom of the ship, the original landing site. His conclusion was that when the flood waters subsided, the ark sank into the muddy earth. This held the ship upright. Then God sent the wind to dry the face of the earth. The portion of the ship that sank into the mud was now firmly embedded in the ground. Many years later, when the lava carried the ship down the mountain, the main body of the ship was ripped loose. Only this section remained in their original location. Around this area that Ron believed to be embedded petrified wood, he found specimens of rock which looked very unique to him. He took several samples, along with several specimens from the boat shape below. Back home, he sent them for analysis. The results showed organic carbon, which indicated that the samples were consistent with decayed and fossilized wood. 
They also contained metals such as iron and aluminum. This is fascinating here, The guys. analysis of the strange-looking rock Ron had found about a mile and a half above the site by the bottom of the ship was clearly the most exciting. His initial analysis had shown it to be metals and not rock. In 1984, Ron met and became friends with Colonel Jim Irwin, the former astronaut. Colonel Irwin was searching for Noah's Ark on Mount Ararat, but he was very gracious and was interested in seeing the boat-shaped site. Ron had brought a metal detector to the site to see if there was a pattern of metal readings. In the presence of Colonel Irwin and others on his team, Ron employed the detectors. He found distinct metal lines down the entire length of the object, while no metal readings were obtained just outside of it. Ron asked Colonel Irwin, who had impressive scientific community connections, if he could have the strange specimen tested. Colonel Irwin sent the specimen to Los Alamos National Labs, where geophysicist John Baumgartner performed the analysis. The results of that analysis captured Dr. Baumgartner's interest. The specimen contained manganese, also titanium and aluminum, among others, and these were not in the form found in nature. Due to the sophistication of the metals, he questioned whether a missile had crashed on the mountainside and Ron had found the remains. The exciting evidences of the metal lines and the analysis of the specimens brought two new researchers into the work. It's just about Dr. Gone. Baumgartner this and David Fassel, a marine salvage expert who knew all about ships and their construction. They both joined the team. Oh, look at that. Oh, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Let me get a close-up of that. Kind of, um... You want my hand in there for Yeah, me? just to point at those little okay. flakes of iron that are coming out, like right there. There and there. Huh. Metal fasteners That's and... That's reading. And... I'd say that, that, uh, those frames right there. Okay. Uh, <laughs> keep walking. Do you want, do you want a measuring tape to measure these things, how far apart they are? This proves the Bible beyond a shadow of a doubt to people. That's the only reason I'm showing it. It's 100% Bible. take the liberty here to ask you, uh, do you really honestly believe uh, that you have been on the remains of Noah's Ark? I have no, no doubt in my mind. There's, uh, this has to be a man-made structure. It's full of metal. Metal is, uh, has a regular pattern to it. And uh, uh, the size of the thing and the shape of the thing is such that it's it's almost certainly a, a large boat. Dr. Baumgartner okay, we and can, Ron uh, scanned the entire site with three different They outlined the whole boat with pipes, with the metal detector, and they, they 
you can go to your own self and see where it says Noah's Ark found, and you can watch that yourself. But they, they lined that entire boat using a metal detector and, and pipes, and they basically got the entire shape of the ark. And it's exactly, precisely, to the eighth of an inch, how the scripture dis, depicts. And they even, I don't want to finish, spend the rest of the time with that because I do need to close it out, but they even went down with depth. If you go to that, that yourself, they, they did depths and did the stories and did the rooms where the animals were, and they, they've got the entire thing. It just blows my mind because as they mapped this thing out, they, they got these 2020, these other newscasters, in there and, and they went down and they showed the actual depths of that ark. And, uh, you know, I, I hope you don't mind me showing a video instead of teaching, but that could say it a whole lot more than I could trying to explain it. Because I was, I was, I was wanting to get to it, but anyway, do y'all think that's cool? I mean, it's, I mean, it's one hundred percent. It's all real. It's all true. Every bit of it. it. I mean, people have been for years and years and years trying to dispute that, and there it is, and, it, and, and it's undisputable. And uh, so that'll. That's a whole lot more to Mount Ararat than the rainbow. And uh, when I finish up mountains this time, I think I'm going to go back to the feasts, every one of them, to the showbread, to the temple service, to the temple worship. I mean, we did this once before. It's about been three or four years. But, I mean... Every single one of them is, is so much detail coming from this Old Testament, which now represents the New Testament. But so that will conclude uh, Mount Ararat as far as our study on that one. But let me, uh, I actually had ended that with uh, the Tower of Babel because that ended the Abrahamic, I mean the uh, Noetic covenant that God made with Noah. Now we're going to be moving into the next one, which is the Abrahamic covenant, when God promises the Jews that, hey, I'm making my covenant with you. I'm going to bless your seed above any seed. And we'll get into the story of Abraham and Isaac. There's much more to it than, than I know David has taught on it before, and I'm not going to add or take from it. I'm going to just go straight first by verse with the scripture, but we're going to go to Moriah. And... uh and visit that mountain the next time I teach. And uh, that's got a special place in my heart. I've never been to Ararat. I've been to Ephesus in Turkey. And, uh, but I've never been to uh, Moriah. I mean, uh, Ararat. I have been to Moriah. And uh, anyway, I'm going to close with that. You listen to Deacon Danny Cahoot. For more information, Visit our website at BufordRoadBaptistChurch.com.